Doctor, we have a hard problem in psychological profiling. I want to ask your help with a questionnaire. We, being the royal we, you're one of Zephyr West's, aren't you? I am, yes. May I see your credentials? Yes, here they are. That expires in one week. We're talking about psychology, Doctor, not Zephyr West. Can you decide for yourself whether or not I'm qualified? Hmm, that's rather slippery of you, Cam. Send through the questionnaire. Oh, Cam, do you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool? Yes, actually. Welcome to It's About Nothing. Cam, so um, where where was that? Where have I taken that from? Do you think? I have no idea. Oh, that's good. I won't and tell I, you. It's probably reflected in my delivery too. Okay, so I won't I won't tell you uh, what, <laughs> until we bring on our guest today. And the reason I bought it was actually there's a, a slight a small relationship between the uh, the script and the character uh, that um, this is that that the subject's about. And the person we're bringing in today, there's actually a clue in in the name of the person of, uh, who you... Oh, you know what? I think I've got it. And have you got it? Should I say or should I wait? I think um, I've, got a, I've got a theory. Okay. Well, um, I don't know what to do now. You... <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll wait. We'll wait. Right, we'll wait. We'll wait. Otherwise... Yeah, but of, course, yeah. of course, what will happen is I'll just say I'm right either way, but... No, okay. I, I just, I recollected, uh, yeah, the name and the connection. Yeah. So what, what you can do to prove that you knew all along, even though I trust you, is you could write down on a piece of paper and then you could hold it up. And, yes. if, and if we ask you later and it looks like you're frantically writing something down, then we'll know that you were lying. Yes, I'll do that. Maybe we should. Um, it'd, be, it'd be funny if you wrote down about 10 different names just, just to play it on the safe side. <laughs> And hold up the right one. This is this is great podcasting, by the way. Like, um, <laughs> you know, doing things that people can't. Oh do. yeah, I know that one. Of Can course. Oh wait, no, no, don't hold it up because he'll see. <laughs> 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 <That makes sense. laughs> very good. Oh well, this is also started off very well, hasn't it? <laughs> All right, let's keep moving. Oh dear. Okay, so uh, it's probably pointless us. <laughs> Continuing with this facade now. So that was from Silence of the Lambs. Who's the character? What's the name of the character? Hannibal Lecter. Oh, yeah, of course. Who, who, who let me just completely ruin it now, who in, in the sequel was in Italy under the name of Dr. Fell. Yes, and uh, our guest today, his, uh, his nickname is actually Dr. Fell. He, he took on that persona because he liked it. We'll, maybe we'll ask him why he chose that name, actually. That might be interesting. I'd like to uh, ask him this because it's... Um, it has connections not just to Hannibal Lecter, but I think it's a name used in other other stories as well. So. Yeah, that's right. In fact, I think Fell means something um, as well, uh, that it's something sinister, I think. I can't remember the definition of it. Um, Adam might know. So um, when, we, when we bring him later, we've got a... Uh, today, what we thought we'd do something... Uh, that we had planned from the beginning, which was that um, whilst so far we've been inviting in, I guess, specialists from our field or people who uh, work in, uh, you know, complex organisations doing diagnostic work. We've, got, we've had academics. Uh, we've had, um, you know, specialists who work in wellbeing. Uh, and one of the things we wanted to do was also 
invite people in to talk about their jobs and to talk about their trades. So uh, thing, they could be jobs that are very unfamiliar to people or they could be jobs that are very familiar with people because they, they uh, interface with them all the time, but they don't know what goes on behind the scenes. So that's, that's kind of where some of the interest lies. Uh, and so uh, Adam, who will come in shortly, is a locksmith, but he's had a couple of other careers that are, that are interesting as well. He's been a security guard and also a baker. So uh, I think we just got to, he just has to become a butcher and a candlestick maker and, and we'll be able to have a really great intro next time we do the podcast. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the, the topic today was kind of looking at uh, the the i guess what happens behind the scenes of normal everyday jobs ones that look on the surface oh this is you know just a, a pretty straightforward uh type of work but actually uh it's a bit like the i guess the duck that looks sort of quiet on the surface is frantically paddling underneath there's usually much more to it than we realize and um and you usually if we call somebody to, to help us solve a problem in our house it could be like a plumber or it could be uh someone to fix the um uh, you know the electricity or something uh they, they they show up on your doorstep and you expect them to kind of walk in and, and kind of fix fix and solve these problems on the spot yeah. uh and in order to do that you need a you know usually a great deal of expertise and they're usually juggling about another hundred jobs at the same time so um that's something i, I find of interest as well and uh, that was one of the reasons why we thought we'd bring in Adam today is to kind of understand some of those, you know, perhaps also to understand as customers, uh, what are those annoying things that we as customers might do um, from time to time that kind of may aggravate um, tradespeople. Yeah, and particularly at the moment, right, because there's a whole conversation about essential services and like what actually is essential and what isn't. And there's some... You know, like we've, we've been talking a lot on this podcast actually about people who work from home and that sort of flexibility. But, and as we noted, as we went along, there are a lot of people who don't work from home because they can't work from home. So mm-hmm. the pandemic's probably put into, you know, fairly you know, stark terms, like who can work from home and who can't and who's essential and who isn't really essential. Yeah, well, indeed. I, I believe um, uh, being uh, so Adam's trade as, as a locksmith is not a class, it's not just an essential service, it's actually considered an emergency service. Yep. So, that's um, he's one of the few people who could actually continue working. And uh, you're absolutely right that in the pandemic, it actually really helped prioritize the things that are truly valuable to society, isn't it? it basically, it was uh, supermarkets, um, get the food going, make sure you can still get bread and milk and those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, but uh, toy shops and uh, clothing stores and, uh, you know, uh, even recreational centres, all of those things, they, they suddenly drop off the list. The arts uh, plummeted. Uh, you know, people, whole, whole, the whole arts industry is in complete distress. I've got a, a friend who lives in uh, Germany who is a, an opera singer and basically he's had to rethink, uh, you know, everything because... You know, in Germany, it's it's the the virus is running rampant, and yeah. hopefully the the vaccine will come along. But it's it's certainly a, a field of work that you're just simply not going to get much work in at all in the foreseeable future. Yeah, well. All right. So what we might do is uh, we might introduce our next guest. We'll bring him in shortly. So as I mentioned before. Uh, so Adam is is a colleague of ours, someone uh, and a friend, someone we've known for a number of years. 
he's a bit of a character. He's had lots of interesting uh, jobs that always seem to require lots of night work. So uh, there's, he's been a baker. So getting up, not just, not just at the crack of dawn, but actually well before the crack of dawn to spend uh, endless hours baking bread in really hot conditions. He's then been a security guard working through the night, night after night, uh, dealing with uh, drunken, uh, angry people uh, for a living for a number of years. And now he's moved into his own business as a locksmith, which he's been doing for a few years now. Uh, business is booming. And he's uh, once again at the mercy of these sort of late night calls and having to go out in the middle of the night and deal with distress, probably sometimes, again, um, drunk people, tired people, grumpy people, people wanting not to pay money and all of those sorts of things. And, and that's one of the things I wanted to chat about today is talk, talk about his job. What are the challenges? What don't we know about being a locksmith? So I'll bring Adam in now. Hi, Adam. Hey, guys. Welcome. Welcome, Adam, to It's About Nothing. Did you, um, did you pick up on the, the script immediately? I did. Uh, that was the world's longest synced introduction, but that was awesome. Um, well, well done, guys. <laughs> no. And, yeah, so um, with, with, the, uh, with the Dr. Fell thing, it was pretty much um, a parallel between myself and uh, the character Anthony Hopkins played, but only in the sense that he appreciates good manners and he's got an interest in art and he's a little bit quirky, but um, that's probably where we separate because I'm not <laughs> the serial killer or the um, sociopath yet. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> there is, um, I, I find that character actually really quite interesting. And he, he does, as you say, Adam, put a lot of value on good manners. And he actually kills on occasion because of examples of bad manners, um, which I, I find quite interesting. And that, that, was, um, that was part of the reason I had to leave being a bouncer or a crowd control <laughs> in a technical term. Uh, you just, you'd spend hour after hour explaining why someone can't come in and then yeah. the next person would replace them and you'd, you'd have to tell the exact same story and you just, you'd run out of steam and by the end of the night, you'd be completely forgotten and you go back to work doing the same thing again and again and again and again. So I sort of yeah. ran out of um, tolerance and patience in that aspect. I, I know like years ago, I did bartending and like when people are, you know, drunk, they they sort of don't realise how they come across to sober people a lot of the time. Like it's much harder dealing with drunk people and if you're not drunk yourself. And that sort of, I met, I know as a bartender back then, people would want, you know, that one more drink. So they go to the bar and try and argue with you that they weren't actually drunk. But the more they, the more they argued, the drunker they appeared. Yeah. So I'm sure you had that experience, um, you know, working as a security guy. That, yeah, that Sorry, Sorry. Go on, right, well, oh, some some venues. Um, I've worked at a strip club. I won't I won't name it for legal reasons, but um, you'd say no to someone, and then you might cop a smack in the head, and then that would be the end of it. And yeah. then I later moved to a place in Chapel Street, which I also won't name. But uh, you'd say no to someone, and they rejoin the queue, and then try it again, and then <laughs> they just recycle themselves. Yeah. And then sometimes they'd sit on the fire hydrant and eat a meat pie and just stare at you for twenty minutes, and then try it again which is kind of worse. You'd almost 
appreciate the smack and then be on your way, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than they're almost like insulting your intelligence by like going and lining up again and trying it on. Um, well, they'd, they'd swap T-shirts and, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, now I don't recognize you anymore. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Crazy. When, when they swap T-shirts, do they swap it with each other? Like they basically just, you know, rotate it around. They'd swap it with each other and they do it in front of you. And then it's like, it's like when you play high hide and seek with a three-year-old and if they don't make eye contact, you haven't spotted them, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. When you said, Cam, the, the, the person who's drunk doesn't, uh, you know, gets really angry and then they, it kind of escalates. It reminds me of something actually I think Adam told me once is that if you're, if you're thrown in, in a, like a mental institution uh, and you're not crazy, that and the the angrier you got, saying I'm not crazy, I'm not crazy, that people would start to go, oh, this is not very, this is not good. Uh, back yeah. to your room, back to your room. You're getting very distressed here, and you it's, couldn't it's, actually. It's almost a catch twenty two from the book, isn't it? Like you can only get out of there if you're insane, but in order to like, if you if you say that you're insane, then you must be sane or something like that. It's like it's a, yeah. I, I used that um, that on my, not on, my, on my daughter yesterday. She said, "I was saying, oh, you're you're getting very mature, and and you know we explain that means sort of grown up." And she said, "Oh no, I'm not mature." And I said, "Oh, that's exactly what a mature person would say." Oh, how did that go? Uh, she well, she clicked with it. She understood. She said, "Oh, does that mean I'm mature again?" And I was like, "Yes, it does." <laughs> <laughs> isn't, isn't that kind of isn't that kind of the premise for um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest? Like um, Jack Nicholson was sent there and then he figured out that half the patients were there voluntarily. And then by the time he tried to walk, it was sort of too late because he, you know, he, he pressed all the buttons he was meant to press. Yeah. I think that's right um, from memory. I thought it was intentionally ambiguous that he, it looked like he was faking it. They thought he was faking it the whole way through. And you're sort of left thinking he probably was, but then the place drives him insane. So he was actually saying he was trying to get out of going to prison, I think. And then eventually the time he spends there drives, drives him to insanity and he becomes very violent at the end. And then I thought that's what the, the point was. Maybe I missed the point. Maybe we need to go back and reread it or rewatch it. So I don't think I've watched it or read it since I was a teenager. No, I, I think keeping it ambiguous is, you know, it's healthy for discussion. You can make your own interpretation. Yeah, true, true. So Adam, I'm going to ask you: Are you like almost nocturnal now because of many years of the work? Oh, jeez. Um, yeah, I could I could go back as far as um, as far as St Kevin's. Um, there were definitely in year twelve. I'd spend I'd spend most of the morning half asleep, and then my brain would sort of switch on around midday, yeah. and then um, I'd go to bed at three or four every morning. And wow. it wasn't out of, it wasn't out of choice. It was just. Um, yeah. I, I was sort of being um, pigeonholed into into what you know people accept as normal normal life, normal um, circadian rhythm. Yep. But um, I've always had an active brain at night. It just ideas pop into my head, and at the time I was interested in painting pictures, and I'd, I'd get a, you know I'd, I'd try and sleep, and my brain would say, "Hey, what about this? What about that?" And okay, it was, it was setting me up for um, like following that. I became a baker, which I'd started. Um, 1.30 in the morning, but yeah. you'd go to bed when the sun would go down, so there was sort of something natural about that aspect. But ever, ever since then, I've never never been a daytime person, except for, I guess now I'm sort of day and night, which isn't too healthy. 
<laughs> yeah, okay. What's the what's the longest you'd have to go with that you've gone without sleep? Well, I it's not that I'm I'm sleep derived sorry, sleep derived in, in the uh, in the sense that you go, you know, X amount of hours without sleep. It's it's in the sense that I might sleep three hours and then wake up anyway. So mm. I think most people would would determine one day from the next as being 24 hours, but I kind of just sleep three hours at a time and on, on a rotating roster. So tell, tell us about your, your, the job that you have now, Adam. So like uh, if you're, what, what is the most common thing uh, that happens when you, when you show up at someone's house to let's say to let them into the house or, or to, I guess, rekey, rekey the house. Like what's a, what, or let's, what are the common sort of, things that customers say say to you when you when you come in is there like some sort of pattern that you've you've picked up or different types of people yeah random random phone calls would more often than not be lockouts so people locked out of the house um but i've kind of uh, tailored the business to be predominantly real estate uh based so 99 percent of my clients now are property managers and so the calls that i get from them are usually rekeying and you get a request to rekey a property if, if the tenants are vacated. And during COVID, it's, it's become popular. Um, people can't afford the rent. Um, people don't have the jobs anymore. People have their jobs, but they're not in a position to work because of, you know, this and that. So, it's, I mean, it's, it's going back to normal now, but there's been at least half a year of um, properties just becoming vacant. Yeah. Which, you know, it's, it's bad for the economy because people are, are not, making ends meet for their mortgages. And then if you sell, undersell your house, it's, it's sort of the precursor for a recession. So yeah, um, we're doing better now, but uh, I've, I've been getting at least at least five or six calls a day that are just free keys. Like there's been a freeze on evictions, haven't, haven't there? Like hasn't there? Well, over, over the... There has there has been a freeze on, on residential evictions. I'm still doing commercial evictions. Yeah, wow, well, okay. But I think what's happening is is uh, people are mis mishearing what's being told to them. So the truth is they don't have to pay their rent right now. But I think what people are hearing is they don't have to pay their rent at all. Yeah. Okay. So so now now it's sort of um, it's it's similar to the to the process of, of coughing up an ex debt where mm. you know if, if you have the money you don't have the money it's you know it's not like it's turning to mafia style collection but people are asking for their money now. Yeah. Yeah, so I would have thought that if you if you can't be evicted, there'd be a lot less rekeying work. And also, I think when when everyone was locked out at nighttime, there was a curfew. There'd be fewer people getting locked out of their homes as well. Yeah, there were there were definitely less less people being locked out. There's, Although, you'll find you'll find that correlation with a lot of things. Um, when if it's raining, you get less people locked out because less people go out when it's raining. Um, but then on weekends, you'll get a lot more because people go out, they get, get drunk, they lose their keys. Um, so yeah, you can, you can almost predict it like the weather. You can, you can pencil in when you're going to be busy or not. Mm. Yeah. So the, uh, the alcohol industry is very good for locksmiths, isn't it? It's fantastic. <laughs> I, I, should, I should be sponsored by Woodstock. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so uh, there's so there's the um, the reduction, but I, I since um, this year, I don't think you've you've had a reduction like a, in terms of like when I've ever spoken to you, you've always been flat out. 
So a lot of people I've been finding are in the same boat. They're, they're, everyone's worried about the economy. Lots of things have sort of slowed down, but it seems that everyone, well, everyone in my circle, and I can't speak for all the people who um, say we're running restaurants and things because I don't know anyone who runs a restaurant, um, but a lot of people uh, have been surprisingly busy this year. It, it, you'd think that we all would have been twiddling our thumbs for a few months when we had this lockdown and curfew, but somehow we all seem to be out and about doing things constantly. I don't know about you, Cam. Did you have a, a bit of a lull? Um, I had a sort of a small lull around June, July, but no, over, overall it's been really busy, actually. Like much, much busier than I sort of anticipated maybe in March when I was looking forward, you know, and kind of adjusting to see what kind of year it would be. Uh, so, Adam, what is the... The biggest, the biggest challenge, so if somebody calls you up for a job and, and you kind of go, oh, I'll, I'll do it, but this is something that always takes a long time, I can't, or, or you don't like doing it, is there anything like that on the, on the list of jobs that you just, you prefer not to have to do? Well, it sort of starts with, with the pricing. So on, on my website, I've got my prices listed and a lot of locksmiths don't do that because they can sort of make more money out of a customer depending on how desperate they are. But it's one of those things where I actually want someone to look at my prices and if they don't like the look of them, then they can call someone else and I don't have to deal with the argument. So you get a lot of, you get a lot of tie kickers. You get a lot of people that um, don't value what you do for a living. But what happens is if you start lowering your prices, they'll, they'll call back and they'll, compete with another locksmith and they'd say, well, I'm not doing it for 100 because this guy will do it for 90 and then he won't do it for 90 because this guy will do it for 80 and the whole industry gets bastardized. So I, I set my prices where they are and I don't, I don't budge, you know, one iota, but they are competitive having said that. Have you always like taken that approach? Like when you were starting off? Did you- no, def- definitely not. I used to, um, I'd get a call from someone and then they'd say, um, I'll think about it. And then this is when I'm starting off. I'd call them back with a lower price. Okay. And I'd, I'd sort of go through um, this, this bartering process. Yeah. But obviously, like, you've built up a clientele by this point. So you're in a, in a, a stronger position, perhaps, to sort of... I have. And, and that's, that's, that's what this year is, pretty much. Because um, last year, I'll, I'll try and give you the short version of it. But last year, I had someone working with me. And I was paying him a wage. And he was doing a great job. And I thought... Instead of being a locksmith, I'll use my time to meet new clients and try and boost the business while there's other guys on the road doing all the work. Yeah. Um, that has a knock-on effect of about six months. So if you if you walk into a, a Ray White or an O'Brien or an LJ Hooker and blah, 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 boost the business, about six months later, you'll get a lot of people that just call you because if they heard from you last time, well, they, they talk to each other and it yeah. kind of grows from there. So... Most of this year has been a result of of the uh, networking from last year. Yeah. Yep. So, um, and now that my employee is gone, I'm sort of on my own. It's it's one of those things where, you know, you make your bed, you've got to sleep in it. I've actually got too much work. Okay. Well, would you would you potentially take someone on again going forward? I've, I would in, in the sense of either casual or subcontracting, only yep. because I think by 2025, superannuation is going to go up to 12%. I could be wrong on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, possibly. And I was, I, was, I was finding doing my bass the last couple of years, it, right now it's a nine and a half percent. Yeah. And 
I'm just, I was just barely making ends meet. And I think one quarter I owed the ATO about 10 grand and my vehicle broke down and I thought I can either pay the tax office and not have a, not have a car. So I'm not able to, to work yeah. or I can buy a new car and then say to the tax office, I'll pay you when I've got the money. So like, you know, you get stuck in these sort of um, predicaments where you, you're not going to do well either way. And I actually picked the option of um, putting the ATO on hold, which it's actually pretty scary because once once they watch you, they watch you for a while, I've been told. So, you know, like every every time we have a federal budget, um, we hear about, you know, really regardless of which party's in power, we hear about measures to assist small business and, you know, tax breaks and subsidies and things like that. Like, so in, in your time of operation, have any of those things actually made a tangible difference to you and what you do? It, it has in the sense that I went through my schooling at TAFE while Labor was in power. Yeah. And they, they tend to look after anything, you know, blue collar, anything trade based. And then now, now that I'm, I'm sort of, you know, company director and I'm not white collar by any means, but I'm, I'm the guy that signs the checks. Um, it's convenient that Liberals in power. Yeah, I yeah. Think, I think they, um, they recognise the value in businesses because yeah. the businesses create employees and the employees can work as hard as they want to. I think it's sort of, um, it's healthier for the, for the economy. Yeah. It's a really interesting but, perspective there though, that you've sort of, in, in some ways you've seen benefits from each approach to government, depending on where you're at in your career at the time. Mm, that's right. You, you always, and that's, um, that plays out sort of in, in uh, people's political affiliations usually as well with their age. Like, you know, there's, you know, the theory that when you're sort of younger, people tend to be sort of more left-leaning and then as they get older, they become more conservative. Not everyone, but that's sort of a general... Yeah, problem. but yeah, but I know, that's true, but like I know quite a few tradies, like say in their, you know, mid-20s and up and, you know, based, mostly self-employed guys and a lot of them are voting... Uh, and I don't want to listen to a political thing, but a voting liberal for exactly the reason that Adam sort of talked about. So at a fairly young age, you know, they're running their own business and, you know, maybe like having to pay superannuation for people. They do have someone working for them and, you know, bass statements and all that sort of mm. stuff. And they are discovering those things. But maybe mm. you go in a different direction and you're sort of like, you know, university qualified, moving into you know, different spheres of work, you, you know, you might have somewhat of a different perspective on that at a younger mm -hmm. age. Yeah, yeah, probably true. It's um, when, when I think Adam was saying Labor's sort of more focused on the blue collar, it's usually, it's not usually the business owner as much, I, I, at least I don't think. It's more the, uh, it would be more the tradespeople, wouldn't it? And the... Well, uh, it's and more the, traditionally it's a unionised workforce. So it's yeah, like, yeah. and what's interesting about that is like the unionised workforce is smaller than it's ever been. And so I think it's... Right. Like, 15% of the private sector is unionized now. So like most, most people in trades, be they, you know, locksmiths or plumbers or sparkies or whatever are essentially working for themselves. So they, you know, labor doesn't necessarily have their vote in the same way they would 20, 30, 40 years ago. Right. Okay. I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. Is that, so what, what would it, what was it at its peak then roughly? I don't know. Back in the day, I'm, I'm guessing it would have been closer to sort of, 40-50%, probably even more than that. Mm. Um, Adam, so tell us about, is there any, aside from the, the working hours, right, do you ever, have you ever detected there's a pattern 
between being a baker, a uh, security guard and a locksmith? Is there anything that's similar in those, those fields? Because on the surface of things, the only thing I can see similar on for a security guard and a locksmith is they're both kind of security related. Uh, whereas bakeries, I, I can't see any connection there at all, except for the, maybe the working hours that might be similar. Oh, the, the baking thing, before that, I worked in a bottle shop just just to make it more complicated. <laughs> but um, I just oh, this is silly. I I just walked past um, Baker's Delight in um, in Brighton and stuck my head in and said, "Can I have a job?" And they said, "Yeah, sure. You want to start tonight?" <laughs> wow. It was as simple. It was as simple as that. I mean, yeah. the world's really changed today. If you've, you've got to create an online this and that and send forms and then go through stages of interviews and get yeah. chucked in a pile, and if you're lucky, you get you know. But I didn't even want the job. I just walked past and I thought, yeah, I'll have this, have a go at this. And I got lucky. Yeah, okay. And you did that for a number of years. That was like something you did for a while. I did. And um, this is, I mean, I, I don't mind telling personal stories, but at the time um, I was living with my second girlfriend and she'd sort of come home around five o'clock and I'd go to bed at 6 p.m. And yeah. as a result, she... Um, started spending time with my best mate and blah, 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 blah. But yeah, I right. figured, yeah, I figured that um, because of the job, I sort of couldn't do what I wanted to do. And I was, I was pretty young at the time. I was about 24. Yeah. So, so I thought. That job stopped you have, like it impacted on your private life essentially. Yeah. I just, I just thought I've got, I've got the rest of my life to, to sort of knuckle down and, and, learn about pain and suffering and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But I, I thought if, if I'm, if I'm going to spend the best years of my life doing something, I want to at least be able to party once in a while. So being a security guard was sort of a party and work at the same time because I, I did a lot of different gigs. I, I worked at concerts, um, did outdoor events, worked in bars, clubs, uh, did a few boring things like gaming rooms, um, but it was a definite change of pace. Yeah, I, it's interesting, like in this podcast, we sort of talked about career in different ways and, and the workplace in different ways and maybe different modes of work suit people at different times in their life. And when, when I worked as a, a staffer, so like at, at Parliament, I you know obviously worked really long hours and often worked on weekends. And I found myself on this last weekend gone by actually doing some work on a weekend because a deadline came up really quickly and I, and I was sort of happy to do it in the circumstances but I hadn't done that for a really really long time and it sort of reminded me I, I don't think I want to do that anymore so there was a period in my life where I was pretty happy to work work like that for a few years and I kind of knew at the time it wasn't something I'd be doing forever but I think having done it I'd be reluctant to do it again so I don't know it's sort of the same for you well yeah I think um it's it's such a weird it's, a, it's such a weird thing to get exposed to because you'd sort of learn you'd learn a lot about life in a very short amount of time and like one of the lessons you learn is when to shut up especially yeah. as as a bouncer because yeah. I get you get these people that they'd spend three or four years doing a philosophy degree and they'd have one or two beers under them and they'd start talking about you know Michelangelo or this <laughs> and that. And, and before you know it, you just you find them on the ground with you know blood coming out of their ear, thinking, okay, who, which one got in the argument? So mm -hmm. it's, it's a very steep learning curve being being a bouncer. And I, I guess if if you're working in bars yourself, you'd, you'd sort of you'd see 
you learn how to read body language. You, you learn, like, you know how you can, you can smell the water in the air before it rains. Like you learn how to read a fight three seconds before it starts kind of thing. Yeah. Let, let me ask you a question. I don't know if you can answer this, but when, when I was younger and I kind of went to venues that had, you know, bouncers out the front pretty regularly, I can remember they would often focus on, on shoes. Like shoes seem to be particularly guys, <laughs> like a, yes. like you could be wearing like rags, but as long as your shoes mm. were okay, they'd let you in. Like, is that a, is that just a venue by venue policy, Adam? Like, do you, do you guys sort of, would you, just go on whatever the venue stipulates or the shoes have something? Uh, some, sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's one of those things I, I learned the hard way where um, if, if you're going to say no to someone, just have one reason and stick with it. Because I, I remember this one guy, I said, I said to him, you look like you've had too many drinks. Um, you're sort of slurring your words. You're not walking in a straight line and I don't like your shoes. And then yeah. he said, oh, I've got a new pair of shoes in my car. <laughs> a good one. And, and I let him in because I thought, oh, he's, he's got me. He's, yeah, he's contested yeah. one thing that I've said and he's won. So I let him in. So tell us, what, what, what is it about the shoes then? I, I don't think we've resolved this yet. What is it exactly? I, I know you said maybe it's a policy of the place, but I can understand the, the bouncer going, oh, that's uh, those shoes that, that maybe the, the toes are exposed or something and there's a safety thing we're worried about. Um, it is. If they're wearing thongs um, and you get broken glass, I've, yeah. I've seen, a, I've seen a, um, a wine stem go straight through thongs and into the person's foot. Oh, um, oh gosh. I've actually got a photo of it. I'll, I'll send it to you guys after this. <laughs> okay. Gosh. Um, what about, but what is it about just like, because uh, I, I, I think I can remember at least one time where I was wearing some casual shoes and the security guard, um, we were all lining up and he let us in, but he looked down at my shoes and says, don't wear those shoes out, mate. And I just thought, what's that exactly? Is that just, is that just because they've got nothing better to do and they just like winding people up? Uh, is there yeah, something about the shoes? They never like have a crack at the jacket or the pants or anything. It's always the shoes. Yeah, it's, sometimes it's, it's just a test. So depending on how you respond, it'll it'll be an indication of how many drinks you've had. Ah, very interesting. So if, if, you, if you sort of ask me a question about the shoes maybe and I get really defensive about it, like is it, is it partly just a way to engage me in conversation to kind of see how defensive I get and whether I can put a sentence together? Because what, what people never realise is I'll watch them 200 metres away get out of their car, they'll yeah. stumble left and right and then when they're 10 metres in front of me, they'll just spring back to life like a cardboard cutout and you know they put on this show of I'm, I'm pretending to be normal yeah so if i mean if if someone's perfectly normal and you say to them how are you they might say fine thanks yourself but if if they've had 10 drinks they might say what, what's it to you why are you asking me and they'll you know it's not it's not something to get angry about mm. but they're ready for a fight so is there a lot just, just some harmless questions yeah, is there, uh, given that you said that you can kind of uh, anticipate a fight brewing, uh, is there a strategy to diffuse a situation that you've, that you've picked up on? Like, are there any sort of tips for people if they're in a situation where someone looks like they're about to get aggressive? What should you do? The best thing to do is talk to them. Mm. If, if, you ask, if you ask them why and they start to explain why, and then you give them a relatable story. You can you can watch them calm down, mm. which you know it's if 
if you win the battle with with your mouth, it, that's that's ninety percent of the work done. Mm. That, that's interesting. Is that like do you get any training in that regard, or is that just something you work out for yourself as you go along? Yeah, you you work it out as you go along. Yeah. Because um, I mean, it's it's one of those things where the easy thing to do is is to get physical, and then your your, your brain will be wired up for the rest of the night because you've got adrenaline going through your system. Yeah. Um, the harder thing to do is to give them, you know, five minutes of your time to talk to them. But then after that, you don't have to watch your back sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, you, you, tr you try and, you try and do the right thing. But like I said, over, over 10 years, your, your patience starts to wane a bit. You, you'd also be uh, like, I'm, I'm assuming if you're, you know, say going out at three o'clock in the morning, you're driving around meeting strangers all the time, but they're usually in need. So I'm assuming that you don't have to deal with as much, I guess, conflict or aggression when you're in your line of work now. Oh, you sometimes get people that are pretty upset that they want to get back inside. And they'll say, they'll say something like, how long does it take? And which is a little bit annoying because I've been at it for five minutes and it's like, I'm just putting on a show now. Now I'm going to open the door for you. <laughs> um, I, I had a few drug affected clients that um, I, I've had to call the police on because they didn't want to pay. Yeah, so, right. So that, that's that's what you do in that circumstance. Like if they're unable or unwilling to pay, you you call the police. Yeah, I, I call the police because I try and I try and think of how it looks if if something does go to court and yeah. you know after, if I'm if I'm twice somebody's size and I've got tattoos and i you know it doesn't look good yeah so i'd rather i'd rather keep things civil yeah and i know yeah. you've dealt with evictions before um i imagine that's difficult to say the least well with with the um residential evictions we we have police presence okay so that's a standardized that's yeah and half the time the place is spotless and nobody's there okay um a quarter of the time you'll be stepping over kids' toys and there'll be holes punched in the walls and crown everywhere. And yeah. you can, you can do the maths and you can see it's, it's somebody that tried to start a family and they couldn't pay the rent. And yeah. you, you know, you so say, I, I mean, as harsh as this sounds, I, I don't get emotionally involved. I'm, I'm just there to do a job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of like a vet, you know, they, they do care for the animals, but not to the point where they they're in tears every time they have to put one down sort of thing. Yeah, um, you have to maintain a professional distance, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I've had I've had a couple where we've sort of busted um, marijuana grow rooms. Yeah. And it's, it's it's been a case of of the thing being in operation for about three or four years, and then one year they let the electricity bill slide, and then you know they stop paying the rent, and then we come along and there's there's a lot of damage. A lot of people don't get uh, rental insurance, which I thoroughly recommend. Yeah. Because you get stuff like um, holes in the ceiling from hanging things, hanging lights, 200 watt lights, and then there'll be water damage on the carpets, on the walls, which creates rising damp. I don't know if you know about that, but it's when the walls sort of turn to chalk because they've been affected by the water so much. So yeah, it's, and they get, they get screened by, by property managers. They look the part, but then as soon as they move and they kind of turn into someone else. Yeah. Have you ever been to an eviction where they have to drag someone out the police? Yeah. 
Right, and that's uh, that, that's probably the worst. So, so the first situation is like they've they've abandoned the place because they the writing's on the wall. They know they're about to be evicted, so they've accepted it. And the second situation is things are a mess. Uh, they're in transition to onto something else. And then the third situation is they're still not accepting the situation, and uh, they have to be forcibly removed. That's that's exactly right. Could be Donald Trump in January. There may be a locksmith. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that still going is is he still around or he's, uh, he hasn't he hasn't conceded yet as of today but um he, he more or less did concede yesterday or the day before like by default because he said well, i'm going to authorize the transition process to begin like i'm still fighting this election but i've authorized the transition process to begin so i think that was probably the unofficial signal for people. Yeah. I, th I think I think it was inevitable uh, in terms of like everyone was like talking about these these horror scenarios where he'd like um, basically um, board up the White House and 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 they'd have to send people in to drag him out all this stuff and it was like I don't, I, ne I never thought that would happen. Nah, I thought he's just basically every possible avenue he's just basically exploring. Um, yeah. yeah, and that's what it's just coming down. Well, to. he's he's eligible to take a second crack at it. Next, yeah, next absolutely. Time, right? He's only served one term, so he could run again in uh, in twenty twenty four, and maybe he will. Yeah, um, I, I was going to ask you, Adam. Um, like, as, like locksmith has in a way a kind of privileged position in society because you can make keys, right? And like, I can't just go and make a key. So presumably, if you can go and make keys, you can access many doors. So. <laughs> in order in order to to have that ability like do you have to go through a sort of certification slash police check kind of process like the actual equipment that you use to make the keys can i go and buy that myself i i assume not so what's the sort of what are the protocols around all that that's a good question because um to do things properly i had to i had to jump through every hoop hmm. and that's and that's in the sense that um to get real estate clients, you have to have uh, public liability insurance. Yeah. And to have public liability insurance, you have to have uh, locksmith certificates. And then to be able to buy the tools that you need from LSC, which is locksmith supplies company, you have to have completed a unit called gain entry, which is only taught as a second year apprentice. Mm. So I had to, had to get all these things together just, just to be able to work for, for property managers. Okay. But having, but having said that, um, if if you have a criminal record, I'm pretty sure they can still they can still teach you locksmithing. You just won't be able to get a license. Mm -hmm. But you only need a license if you're going to work for real estate. So it's a bit of a scary loophole because um, right right now there's a lot of cowboys out there that they'll charge something like forty dollars for a service call, which is ridiculously cheap. Mm -hmm. And the way they make their money back is they don't even attempt to, to pick the door open. They'll just drill straight through the lock, replace the lock, and then they might damage your door and replace the door as well. So a $45 <laughs> job will turn into, turn into 800 bucks. Which I, I could, it sounds to me like I could basically do that myself, right? We you could. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Ken, um, I think um, your, your, I like the way you summarize that there's many keys and many doors. That's great. Uh, I think in, in many ways, you have that ability to do to get into someone's house as well if you really wanted to. I think that the difference is that Adam can do it with precision. 
I, I can. I can. I can leave zero evidence I was ever there at all. Yeah, you've been um, perfect whereas, for in a way. I'm not suggesting it for you, obviously. But, but having said that, that's actually a um, a career up my sleeve. I can get into if I want to as as an insurance assessor. Okay. So if, if I see a break in, I I can see exactly how they got in, what tools they used, and the order of which they used those tools, and which way they turned them, and what scratches equate to what, and whether the paint's fresh, whether it was damaged, whether it was a cover-up job, like mm -hmm. some people will attack their own locks to make it look like they've been sabotaged. Oh yeah, of course. Wow. Yeah. Um, the little things like if you if you scratch aluminium, it'll come up bright silver. Same with with brass, it'll look gold. So I, I can I can see if something's been done the day before or a month before. Um, so having having said all that, I, I leave I leave the job as if I was never there at all. Won't, there won't be a fingerprint, nothing. Uh, what is there anything that when you're out doing your work that you find irritating, like things in your job? So I'm just thinking about uh, when I've had more customer focused roles, like when I was working in retail, for example, there's always, a, you, know, you always leave the end of the day with lots of uh, annoying customer stories. And I'm sure Cam in your bartending days, you had the same sort of situation. There'd be, yeah. there's always some story at when you walk away from work at the end of the day going, uh, you know, like for instance, when I was selling shoes, I remember there was a guy who tried on the same shoe in three different sizes and he sat there for I would have been at least two hours trying one on after the other, walking around and he just could not reach a decision. And I could almost understand that if he had the two shoes in front of him, the two different sizes, that there'd be some sort of maybe critical decision there. But the fact that it was a third pair, that, that's what kind of blew my mind. It's like, is it, you know, how can you go for, how can you be trying to decide between two that are very similar and then take the third one, which is a lot larger or a lot smaller and go, oh, that one's actually up for grabs as well. <laughs> it just didn't make any sense at all. Yeah, yeah. So are there any, any sort of irritating things uh, like just or maybe not, maybe not even irritating, but they could just be like things that people do all the time. They don't even realise it. Like they'll ask you a question. You'll kind of think, well, that's ridiculous, that question. <laughs> Yeah, I, had, I remember this one customer, I rekeyed her front door and when I did the job, she said, where's the old lock? And I said, this is, this is the old lock. And she goes, but I wanted it changed. I said, it is changed. What it is, is the old lock with a new key. So yeah. the old key doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And then she replied, well, where's, where's the new lock? I said, there is no new lock. The lock doesn't change. The only thing changes is the combination. Well, give give me the old lock then, and I'm like we went we went in circles, so I had to draw a picture, and yeah. <laughs> so that um, so just to clarify for the people listening, so you've got the lock itself, right? So that's yeah. is that's that the whole structure, and then that's right. and then the and then the key part of it is where you actually insert the key, right? Well, the the key goes into the cylinder, and inside the cylinder there are pins, and those pins. Uh, corresponds via code. So let's say the code's one, two, three, four, five. The correct key will also be one, two, three, four, five. Mm. And then I take those pins out. I can I can use the same pins to shuffle the order around, but I always use new pins because worn pins will inherit the problems of the previous lock. Yeah. Um, and then the the lock stays as it is. It's just got a new key, and it's actually it's it's the most cost effective way of doing things. Otherwise, you have to replace the whole lock. Yeah. 
what about people? Um, do people watch you while you work? Uh, do, do people actually sometimes try and tell you you're not doing it properly? Has that ever happened? Yeah, well, the number one thing is there's, there's a mental trick that gets played on some people and they don't realise they're part of it in the sense that let's, I'm, I'm assuming both of you guys are sitting at desks right now. If you look at your desk, I bet you can spot a scratch somewhere. If you look at it hard enough, there'll be some tiny little mark somewhere. And the only reason you've noticed that is because I've told you about it. Hmm. So I'll, I'll put a lock on the door and the person will look at it afterwards and they'll say, you put that scratch there. And I'll say, the scratch has always been there. You just never noticed it. And the only reason you're noticing it is because you're inspecting my work. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. I've, I've seen that door a thousand times and never looked at it. So it's, it's one of those things, the way coincidence works. You know, if you, if you grab a handful of coins and you throw it on the ground, whichever way they spill is, is equally as important as the next. Like, there's nothing special about it. The scratch has always been there kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you remember there's a, like an episode of Seinfeld where George is talking about toilet paper and the fact that it hasn't evolved <laughs> many, many years and it probably never will. We're kind of at, at a, you know, a good level with toilet paper. I was wondering about keys and locks. Like on, on one hand, they have evolved a lot, right? Like I can remember when I go to a hotel and I'd be given like an old fashioned key and stick it into a lock. And now like most hotels I go to, I have a card and I tap it and yada 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 but then with so many other things in my life like you know the front door of my house um all that sort of thing gates we we still have the the metal key that we insert into the lock and turn it like is that is that something we're going to like keep going you know for a long long time going forward or are we going to see more sort of automated lock and key devices on like residential property I think I think you'll see both in the sense that anything mechanical will be around for years because uh, electrical things tend to fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in terms of technology, we're seeing new things on the market with uh, fingerprint scanning. Yeah. Um, like stuff with with RFID chips, which which is a radio frequency identity device, which which is what what you've had with your hotels. Yeah. But that, actually, those keys are really annoying because, like, half the time I have to go back to the hotel front desk and ask them to change around the, the key because I leave it in my pocket and it rubs against my credit cards or whatever it does and it skags out. So, like, there's yeah. actually a great line in that movie, Pretty Woman, where Richard Gere, like, goes to the hotel room and he's got the card and it's not working and he says, I miss keys. And, and that's, like, from 1991 or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, that's... Every time there's something new, there's there's always problems that come with it. And the, like I've seen some scary things in the sense that um, keyless entry on cars has a problem that um, hasn't been addressed yet. So what happens is somebody comes home, they take their keys out of their pocket, they um, put them on the coat stand, which is next to the front door. Yeah. If someone has, has a, a card reader, they can walk up to your front door, read the code on the keys, and then walk up to your car and start it without actually touching it. Oh, wow. Okay. So you can have your, your brand new BMW or Mercedes stolen without any, any sign of, of um, attempted entry. Yeah, wow. Which they, and they haven't, the only way around it is if, is if you leave your keys in an aluminium wallet because the, that tends to block the signal. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I, I still think one of the, um, the worst things about the, the start buttons in the car is 
and this happens a lot, is that you the, the the mechanical reminder of taking the key in and out is a, is always like it's a reminder to take your keys with you because the last thing you do is you put the take the keys out, you put them in your pocket. But if you put them in your like in the side tray or something, it's very easy to walk away from the car and just leave the keys in the car. And I just I think that plenty of people are probably doing that. And then of course the keys are in the car, someone can get in. It's not even like you can lock your keys in the car because it stays unlocked, doesn't it? Because the keys are in there. Well, the thing with that is that I've seen that with uh, with houses. So people have window locks and they'll leave their keys sitting inside the window. And somebody spots that from the outside, they'll smash the window with their hand and let themselves in by unwinding the window. And they'll think, no problem, I've got home and contents insurance. But an insurance assessor will say that's negligence because you've left the key within eyesight. You made it too easy to get in. All right. Interesting. Um, just to just to finish up, I had I was thinking of another story when you mentioned the the scratch thing and how obvious it is, and, and the, the the way that play, plays out quite often is with rental cars and things. They'll say to you, uh, "Now we want you to walk around the car and point out any obvious scratches before you take it," because they basically don't want to be in a situation where they've scratched the car and then you come back and say that scratch is always there. Uh, and I always found it a kind of an odd thing that you have to almost like go around checking another car checking the car yourself to make sure you're satisfied with it. Because like you have the time to walk around and inspect every single panel and check for every possible scratch that could be there. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a scam they've got. And if you ever go to Thailand, if uh, you rent a jet ski or something, yes. when you go to return it, they'll, they'll blame you for it. So it's, I mean, it's Very called a condition report. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. We had, um, so when I was in, I went to Tasmania, I think it was probably maybe last year, I think. Um, we, so this is my colleague and I were, were traveling there. And when we got, we drove back to the airport, uh, we realized that our flight was actually about to land. And it, fortunately, Tasmanian airport is really quick and easy. You could just zip right through on into the terminal. But um, we, we jumped out of the car and we basically ran and ran to our flight and we just got on got on in time uh, and then when i got back to melbourne i got a telephone call and the the rental place said uh we've noticed that the screen that your car screen has actually got a massive crack in it <laughs> which i never which we'd never seen and in it and my sort of theory is that it's it shows up in sometimes you can't see a crack if unless you see it under a certain light and I think it was always there, but I'm not 100% sure. So yeah. I was like, I don't remember there ever anything hitting the glass. And they yeah. said, well, we know you're not telling the truth. Well, they didn't say it like this, but they're more or less saying, we know you're not telling the truth because you ran from the, from the car. They knew that. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, because when, they, we dropped, when, we dropped the, yeah, when we dropped the car off, the person who walks around the cars and, you know, checks them and does all that sort of must have seen us running. And, yeah. and so they've made this uh, erroneous assumption that because we're running, <laughs> we're therefore guilty. And I was like trying to explain to them. I said, "Look, uh, I can't. I came down. I came down for business. Yeah. We're, we're professionals here. We've rented the car for one day. I, I'm not going to. I, I'm not the sort of person who's going to go in and and try and scam a car rental place with my colleague. We're not. We're not going to just go. And we're certainly not going to go running away from the scene of a crime. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so um, eventually, they 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 uh, they gave up on the on the hunt and realised that perhaps we weren't." These, uh, these terrible villains. I could just imagine what happened behind the scenes. There was the person standing there going, look at those, look at those two people running and then going over and seeing the crack in the screen going, oh, now I know <laughs> why they were running. 
and it'd be yeah. pretty pretty bad crime because you wouldn't be able to get away with it either, would you? Like, you know, it's just because you run away doesn't mean the screen's no longer cracked. I once dropped off a hire car at an airport and, you know, got on the plane and then got home and unpacked and then realised I still had the key. Oh, no. <laughs> and they're actually really understanding about it. So I just, I think I express posted it or something like that. Uh, um, we might we might wrap up um, with our, our, I guess our main segment. So thanks, Adam, for walking us through the I guess the day in the life of a, of a locksmith and the life of a life of um, Dr. Fell. Yes. Uh, we, what we normally do to wrap up is uh, Cam and I talk about either like a book that one of us might be reading, which is usually Cameron, and, or a a film or a television show that we've gotten into recently. Uh, yep. So rather than maybe you and I came talking about that, is there anything you've seen recently, Adam, or read that you think is... is or listened to. It can be, it could be a podcast or music or something as well. But yeah, I think Adam should have first go. Um, oh, geez, nothing's coming to mind. It will. What, what I find <laughs> usually is we go along. I do a lot of, I do a lot of reading, um, but it's, it's mainly just fact-checking. Yeah, because I've, I've noticed I've noticed the um, the internet in, in general has has no accountability. Um, it's it's easy to, to post the truth, and then it's easy to post a rumor, and then uh, this is true. more people might agree with what's not true at all. And then before you know it, you know it's this is how this is how people got their heads chopped off and suspected of being witches two hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah. So it's just it's one version of that. Devaluing of information. Um, actually, let me ask you on this, like. Dr. Fell, I, have you um, have you gone and read the books behind the movies as well of um, Silence of the Lambs? I've, I've read, um, uh, was it Manhunter? I think it was... Red Dragon. Was a, Red Dragon. Yeah. yeah. Red yeah. Dragon got turned into that. Um, and they actually did another film which didn't involve Anthony Hopkins. I think it came out mid-80s. Um, yeah, but was... I, I think there's some artistic license to that. I know. I know with the uh, with the Hannibal film, um, I think Anthony Hopkins was meant to chop off her hand, or there, yeah. was some, there was something more sinister rather than making it. I mean, it, it doesn't look like a love story. No, that. So you, you're you're right. I think that's what happens, or it's something along those lines. But the book of Hannibal is really different to the movie, and it's a lot more courageous in a way like it, it has quite an unusual ending that i don't want to um necessarily go to here in case anyone wants to you know go and read it but i recommend it but it has a i'd say a brave ending and then when i when i w- watched the movie which i think was directed by ridley scott I, I loved it up until kind of like the very end of it and then they just went in a slightly different direction and i thought oh that was a bit of a cop out mm. Yeah, that Hannibal's an interesting one because the Silence of the Lambs is basically like it's very much a psychological thriller, and Hannibal has got a bit of psychological thriller, but a lot of horror um, and it's sort of it's very macabre. You know, very it, it's it's not a mainstream story at all. Silence of the Lambs is not. It's you can kind of argue it's a mainstream story because it's a police drama. You know, it's it's hunting down a killer. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, that's true. One of the interesting things about Silence of the Lambs, like as a movie, is like Lecter has, like Anthony Hopkins as, as Hannibal Lecter has a, a very small amount of screen time. So you, you sort of think about him as being the dominant character in the movie, which he really is. But 
I can't remember what it is, but there might be like 15 minutes of the whole movie, or maybe it's a little bit more than that, that feature, actually feature scenes with Anthony Hopkins, which if you go back and sort of watch it with that. Yeah, you're right. But he's sort of, he's very present, um, even though he's not there, which is a, a slight segue I might, I might mention. I, I've been reading Dracula and I finished it yesterday. And it's a, it's a similar thing in a way, like the character of Count Dracula, it, there's only a limited number of scenes and they're more concentrated early on in a, in a pretty big book that he's actually in it. And then the rest of the time he sort of like hangs over it. Um, and it's a, you know, I was talking about this the other week about Dracula and the idea of it being horror um, and, and what, what frightens us and what's, what's scary. And it's, Dracula is not necessarily scary to us today in the way that it might, might have been scary to people, you know, a hundred years ago or more when it was, um, when it was first released, but it has all these themes in it because what I did was I went and read a bit, little bit about Bram Stoker himself um, and sort of what you know what he was about and what motivated him and it's a like there's a slightly i guess maybe it's almost like a freudian interpretation of dracula that's very sexually charged so that like the you know the vampirism and this and that is actually a metaphor for sex and then if you go back and i read a little bit about bram stoker himself and he was actually an advocate of censorship which really surprised me <laughs> so he he actually wanted a lot of books of the period to be banned. All right. Someone who's a writer themselves. Maybe like, he was trying to um, wipe out the competition. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of name is Bram Stoker? Yeah, Bram. I'm not sure. Bram Stoker. Yeah. He was Irish, but he was part of this sort of Anglo-Irish, which is almost a class of people that no longer exists. So English people um, and Protestant rather than Catholic who who lived in what's now the Republic of Ireland. And, but they're really prolific, like, um, like Oscar Wilde was one of his contemporaries, for example, and you know, Edmund Burke had been Anglo-Irish as well. Um, but he had, um, yeah, he had some very sort of, uh, you know, he wrote this book in the Victorian era, obviously. So he had some pretty old fashioned ideas about, about sex and morality and, and that, that sort of thing. There was um there's an interesting trend back I think it was probably in the 90s when all of those movies were getting reimagined so there was yeah. Bram Stoker's Dracula they they make they make a point of calling the film Bram Stoker's Dracula not just Dracula I think I don't know and I'm planning to go back and rewatch that movie actually because it's it's supposed to be quite a faithful retelling of the story and I think what's happened with Dracula is it's a little bit like Jekyll and Hyde when we're talking about that the other week it's it's such a famous character now that it's just taken on a life of its own that's not necessarily you know true to the original novel so almost like any vampire type character can be you know called Dracula and it's put in different settings so I'm guessing the intent with that movie was to sort of go back to the book and yeah, well, the same thing with Frankenstein, right? You you often hear like referred to as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Exactly, that's what I was going to say as well. And and I don't know if this is connected at all, but um, the movie The Thing uh, is actually called John Carpenter's The Thing, <laughs> even though um, he didn't write the original story. The Thing is a remake, so that's it's kind of like the complete opposite of what you'd expect. Yeah. Another, another interesting thing in Dracula that sort of came out for me was like science is a really big feature in it. So it's this unusual sort of juxtaposition of science and superstition because obviously the concept of the vampire you know is, is from the fantasy realm and it it sort of 
Early in the book, you see all these like Transylvanian people, peasants who have all these superstitions and you sort of think, well, they're quite silly, aren't they? Because like they're wearing crucifixes and carrying around garlic and all this sort of stuff. But you understand all too quickly that their superstitions are actually grounded in, in real concerns. But at the same time, they do sort of try and look at like the, the people who fight vampirism, like Professor Van Helsing, for example, is a, he's a scientist or, you know, he's a physician. And he comes at it from that point of view. So the Victorian era was obviously an era where, you know, Darwin's ideas had gained traction, you know, science was very much in the ascent, but there was also this like, I guess, lingering religion, lingering superstition, you know, lingering sense of the, the supernatural. Um, I just realised that we actually have lost our, for the first time in our podcast, we actually lost our guest. Um, I think Adam dropped off at some point. We didn't get to thank him for his time. Uh, so yeah. that's interesting. Maybe uh, somebody put the big sort of um, key symbol in the sky and he had to rush off to a locksmith job. <laughs> and that's, yeah. we'll learn about it later. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think you're right. Uh, there was, um, I, I do, I think that those, those original movies uh perhaps at the time were, were considered horrific. I think, uh, you know, like terrifying and everything. And, and they, they're obviously social commentaries as well as, as to what was happening. Of yeah. that era. Uh, it it kind of reminds me of that Simpsons episode with, um, you remember the Halloween one when I think Lisa's reading uh, The Raven? Remember that? That's right, Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and they were kind of reading it. And, it's, and I remember even watching it when I was a, a little kid thinking, no, this is the boring part of the Halloween episode. Like it's kind of, but I appreciate it now. I just always found his voice absolutely you know, um, bewitching. But yeah, I, I guess compared to the other stuff, maybe it was a little bit. I mean, it's funny you say that though, because that was, that was Bart's point in, in that sketch. Remember? So Lisa's well, like trying to scare him with a classic Edgar Allan Poe sort of tale. And then Bart's like, that's not scary at all. Um, That's right. And then she goes, yeah, and she agrees with him, I think, and says, perhaps the people back then were a lot easier to scare or something, because it, it doesn't yeah. seem scary. It's interesting, like, Edgar Allan Poe was quite obsessed with the idea of being buried alive. So there's a number of his books and stories, like, feature this um, this one great one where someone's, like, walled up deliberately, and there's other ones where people are accidentally buried alive. And apparently in those days, it wasn't completely unheard of for this to happen. And they actually, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but they weren't necessarily as good at determining whether someone was dead or alive. So someone might have gone into some kind of coma or something like that. And they might wake up and find themselves, you know, in a coffin underground. So some people actually install <laughs> bells or like you, there'd be a contraption where you'd be in a coffin and there'd be a rope going into the coffin and you could pull it and ring a bell, which would be quite scary if you live next to a cemetery and started, you know, hearing the bell. But maybe in an era where death, you know, might not be easily determined, the concept of being buried alive could be a real concern for people. So that they might be reacting to that. Yeah, that'd be pretty, pretty disturbing to discover in modern era that at this whole time we thought people were dead, that they were just um, in, in another phase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we, we have to get the bells out again, yeah. just in case. Uh, well, um, that's really good. I'm just thinking of anything I've, um, I've been watching lately. Uh, I certainly haven't been reading anything lately. I tend to sort of uh, fall asleep almost immediately <laughs> at the end of the day. Uh, we, oh yes, I, I, I watched a movie the other night, which I really enjoyed. Um, 
It's called Bone Tomahawk. Have you heard of that? No, but I, I actually saw a mutual friend of ours on Facebook had posted the other day that he had watched it. I, I can't remember whether he liked it or not. So tell me about that. Yeah, so I look, it's recommended. You have to have a probably not to have a too, not be too queasy about okay. violence. It's, uh, it certainly is like a, a good old fashioned Western. It kind of, without wanting to ruin it or anything like that, but it, it certainly does deviate at, at a certain point where you, where it becomes a bit more sort of horror and gore related, but the story is pretty good. Uh, I think the characters are great. It's very original. It, it, it actually didn't do very well at the box office at all. What's, what's the premise of it? Just so yeah, yeah, of course. Um, it's basically uh, the, uh, it's, so it's set in this sort of old town and there's a, uh, a guy, this guy's wife gets taken by uh, by Indians or Native Americans, yeah. and they and a, a couple of other townspeople as well. And so the sheriff, who's played by Kurt Russell, uh, I love Kurt Russell. Yeah, he makes a decision. He looks great. I mean, he really looks like a sheriff. He's got this yeah. sort of long beard and and mutton chops, and yeah, he's yeah. just he looks like he he, he could he be a sheriff. Yeah, I can see that. Um, but yeah, so the sheriff um, basically makes a decision to say, "Look, we're going to. I'm going to go off, and it's my duty to go off and rescue her." And the husband uh, insists on coming along, even though he's got a broken leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a third character who's played by Matthew Fox from Lost. You know, Matthew. Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, very completely against type. He plays this kind of very eccentric, kind of likable and also unlikable character. So. He's, he's very egocentric. Uh, he's not particularly nice, uh, but he's very brave and clever. And yeah. he, goes, he goes along with them as well. And they, they go, so essentially it's a, the, the, the plot is very simple. They're going off to rescue uh, this group of people who've been taken. Uh, but is the, it a Western, essentially? It's, sort that? Of, it's a Western. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a Western. Uh, it's kind of got a mix of genre. It's mostly a Western, but it's got... It, it's got a, a maybe a, a bit of a supernatural slash horror theme um, okay. in, when they sort of get to where they need to go, but it's not it's not so supernatural that it, it deviates from you know it's that it's it couldn't happen in the real world or anything like that. But you certainly watch it uh, with it, it's a very modern type of western from that point of view. Yeah. Uh, but it, I, I found it like I, I sat down and I've just. From this, from the very start of the film, I found it was one of those few films where I watched it and I, I thought, I know I'm tired, I know I should go to bed, but I've got to see what happens. And yeah. I, I love movies like that where you just feel yeah. so engrossed in the story and the plot. You've just got to find out what happens next. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, so that I recommend that if you don't like the violence. And for those of you listening, you're not like a big fan of uh, violence or anything a little bit too gruesome, then it's it's probably not the best thing to watch. I only warn people because. Sometimes you watch a really great film with someone and then something happens in a scene that you, you might know about it. Like, for instance, it could be a film like Reservoir Dogs. There's some classic yeah. scene in that one. Yeah, it's yeah. just for, for some people, they just, if they see certain things in films, they'll just go, no, nah, that's that's it. Oh, that's just traumatizing. I hate seeing anything that's too... Yeah, that's some people, it's an automatic turn-off. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Something I'm really missing at the moment is the cinema. Like, um, actually, we can go to the movies here in Canberra, um, but there's not much on. So I'm so, I don't know when that's going to change, honestly. So just that whole thing of waiting. You know, I'm not a prolific movie goer, but we, we go maybe, I would probably go once a month or something. So I suppose that's like 
fairly regularly. Um, but I do miss that experience of going to see whatever the latest movie is and talking about it with people. Yeah. Hey guys, I'm back. Back. Yes, well, welcome back, uh, Dr. Phil. You, did you lock yourself out? <laughs> oh, good one, Nicholas. <laughs> been waiting to say that. That's, it said my phone was overheating, but I think my phone was just overheating from this glorious conversation we're all having. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're just wrapping up, but um, and so it's actually really good timing because what we're going to what we'll do is we'll say thank you very much for for. Uh, indulging uh, questions yes. and and uh, sort of meandering all over the place, um, which is what this this podcast in some ways is all about. It's about nothing, so mm-hmm. uh, we don't we don't always cover um, the hot topics of today. But uh, at one one point in time, I'm sure someone will be picking up this uh, this conversation. Going, this is a, a very important historical reference that we need to. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm uh, I'm very honoured to to be included in this because you guys are both intellectuals and I hope I, I've kept the bar at some height. It's not too lowbrow for you. Like I think Cameron and I combined can make one intellectual. I think which is, yeah. which is good. Do you think? <laughs> we actually raise the bar a bit. Yeah, yeah we with, with Adam we're, we're 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 an intellectual plus. So we're 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 forced to be reckoned with. But we need three of us. Three of us against. And not one normal person. I think that, that probably works. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. No thanks, Jim. Thank thanks, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day or evening or morning. <laughs> <laughs>